0: Good morning, CBC. Thank you, as always, for joining us for our virtual service. Uh, We're always glad that you're tuning in. If this is your first time watching, welcome. Uh, We're glad you're checking things out, and we hope you're blessed by our service this morning. Today, we're going to be taking a break from the series that we've been in for the past several months. We're going to be taking a break from Romans. And I know you're all disappointed. You've been on the edge of your seat. We're just kind of getting to the good stuff in Romans, but it's Christmas time, and we felt like it was worthwhile, we felt like it would be important and good for us to celebrate and reflect on this season together. Because this year, more than ever, I think putting Christmas in its proper perspective, thinking about Christmas for what it's really about, is going to be meaningful for all of us. Because I think as many of us are starting to realize so many of the things that we love about the holiday season and about Christmas are just going to be different this year. Last Sunday, uh, our family went to Alyssa's parents, my wife's parents, for a belated Thanksgiving dinner. Now, Alyssa's mom, I have to tell you, she makes the best turkey dinner hands down in the world. I don't mean to offend any of you. Sure, yours is great, but I'm sorry. We counted the votes. Hers is the best. It's it's all right. But anyway, we were excited to to have dinner. We had been gone on Thanksgiving Day, and so she uh, made us a turkey on on Sunday evening. We made an apple crisp to go with the dinner, and so we were pretty stoked to have an amazing meal. But as we began to kind of set up the table, put out the dishes... I looked at the spread, and my heart just dropped. You got your turkey, your gravy, stuffing, mashed potatoes, but no mac and cheese, no cornbread. See, normally on Thanksgiving, Alyssa's cousin Michelle also comes to dinner. And she makes, hands down, the best mac and cheese and the best cornbread in the world. Sorry, no offense to you, we counted the votes again. It's amazing. And so I look at the table, I look at my plate, and there's just a hole there. And there's a hole really in my heart where that mac and cheese and cornbread is supposed to be. Obviously, it's I guess, not that big of a deal. The meal was still amazing. But it did make me think about more important things. I thought about the people who weren't there, the conversations we didn't get to have, the games we didn't get to play. And I'm sure that some version of this played out for you uh, this past Thanksgiving. And it's likely that some version of this is going to play out in our Christmas celebrations, our traditions. And let's be honest, this is hard. It's disappointing. And we don't want to pretend that that's not the case. And it's likely nothing is going to change that fact. But in the midst of that, the reality is is that there is a lot of good that we can and should expect in this next month especially when we think about and reflect on why we celebrate. And at the end of the day, what is essential to our Christmas traditions. So for these next four weeks, we're going to be doing a very simple Advent series. A series of preparation and anticipation for celebrating the birth of Jesus. And if you've never celebrated Advent before, it's a centuries-old tradition in the church that involves uh, lighting candles. And these candles remind us of the various aspects of what it means that Jesus came into the world to live with us and to die for us. And so each week, we focus on one of these truths to set our hearts and our minds, once again, on, on what this is really all about. And so we'll be lighting a candle of hope, a candle of love, a candle of peace, and a candle of joy. And the guarantee I want to make to you for this Christmas season is that if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with him, then those four things are available to you right now and for the next month and beyond. Pandemic or no pandemic, these things are ours. And we get to celebrate them anytime, but especially this time of year. And what we're going to do is to celebrate that and and to kind of preserve one of our Advent traditions. And I think this is going to be really cool, is that we are going to be doing Advent together. And we mentioned this in the weekly email and in the announcements, but what we want is for, as we light this candle here this morning, for you to light a candle in your home where you are alongside us. Because while we can't share this physical space, we can't all gather together in this sanctuary and watch as some poor soul struggles with the lighter to to get the candle lit, we can still celebrate this tradition together. And I think it's going to be a really cool reminder that we are we remain the body of Christ. So if you don't have a candle ready today, just go ahead and light something in your house on fire as a sign of unity. I'm just kidding. Please don't do that, John, if you're watching, don't light something on fire. But if you don't have anything today, that's fine. We have 3 more weeks of Advent. Uh, Get some candles this week. We have a bunch of candles that we ordered so that you didn't have to go to the store or inconvenience yourself. You don't have to buy them if you don't want to. Uh, Contact somebody at church and we'll set up a time for you to come grab some. But this morning we're going to jump into this Advent season with our first candle, the Hope Candle. And this is such a great place to start because as I alluded to in the beginning of the message, we are living in a challenging time. Life hasn't been easy in 2020. We're dealing with inconvenience, disappointment, frustration, loneliness, anxiety, and very real loss. And this morning, we want to remember that Jesus' birth, Jesus' arrival, speaks to a people who are living in darkness, who have experienced a loss of hope. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And today we're going to be looking at the beginning of Luke's gospel, the beginning of his account of the Christmas narrative. And after a short introduction in verses 1 to 4, Luke begins to tell us the story of how the birth of Jesus came about. So beginning in verse 5, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now, let me just pause there for a second because this is a very fascinating place for Luke to start the story. In many ways, Zechariah and Elizabeth are not super important characters in this story. Now, they are the parents of John the Baptist, and that's pretty interesting. That's significant. It's not like they're total nobodies. But in a book that is so meticulously written, and Luke is very clear that he wants to give an orderly precise account this is an interesting place to start it maybe doesn't seem to warrant the opening verses of Jesus's story this somewhat random couple but there is a reason for this what Luke is doing is setting the stage he's showing us the world that Jesus came into it's almost like the opening shot of a movie You know, the credits are rolling and there's this wide shot from a helicopter just panning across the city. You kind of see the people and the world that are going to inhabit this story. And in the same sense, this is almost the opening shot where we see the kind of people and the world who will be impacted by Jesus' birth. And our very first glimpse of this world, is a picture of brokenness and disappointment. You have this couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and this immediate context of their struggle to conceive a child, an older couple who's dealt with the disappointment of barrenness. Now before we go on, I I do want to acknowledge that this is a source of pain for a lot of people. And I don't bring it up this way to pour salt on that wound. And I don't in any way want to suggest that not having kids means brokenness or automatically means your life is a disappointment. That's certainly not the case. But I bring it up this way because in the context of the story and in the context of the biblical world, that was their experience. Zechariah and Elizabeth had experienced real disappointment and sadness. And this would have been a great source of shame in this society. Later in the passage, as we'll see, Elizabeth actually calls this issue her disgrace. And so they've dealt with this, and they are now an old couple. Luke goes out of his way to tell us not just that they are old, but that they are very old. And that's an important detail because the chances of conception are now basically zero. They've dealt with the disappointment over many years, and they've come to terms with the fact that this just isn't going to happen. Now, on top of this specific disappointment, the text also reminds us of the disappointment that the entire people of God would have been experiencing at this time. Luke opens up by telling us that this took place during the time of Herod, a challenging time for Israel when they lived under the rulership of Rome. And Rome had placed this king over them. Not only that, we see in this glimpse of Zechariah's role as a priest, a reminder of some of the spiritual darkness at this time. The people continued To work at the temple, but the voice of God, the presence of God had felt distant in the recent centuries. This was a conquered people in a sort of spiritual exile. They're wondering about God's faithfulness. They're wondering about God's commitment to them. They're wondering, God, are you still there? And if so, why is life so hard? And so Zechariah and Elizabeth represent something important about Luke's understanding of Jesus' birth, his life, and his mission. Jesus was coming into a world and would be ministering to a people who knew brokenness, who knew pain and struggle and disappointment. Those who were diseased and crippled, poor and outcast, the widows and the orphans. And they were in need of restoration and hope, but unsure that it was coming. Unsure that God cared about their lives and their problems. And what we need to start off this Christmas season in recognizing is that Jesus came for people just like this. Jesus came for the Zacharias and Elizabeths of society. And I think this is always kind of a resonant idea for us, that God cares for the broken and the lost. But I think sometimes we can forget how much we have in common with these type of people, with the sick, the broken, the poor, the needy, the sinner. Especially in our immediate context, many of our lives are so comfortable that it's easy to forget how broken we really are. And I think one of the interesting things about this year, about the pandemic, about everything going on in the world, is that it's been a reminder, maybe even in a good way, of the reality of our own brokenness, the reality of our struggle. Many of us are feeling this in a new way, new fears, new worries, new struggles, a new sense of of brokenness. Many of us are experiencing the reality that our lives, our emotional well-being, our families, our security is maybe not as stable, not as put together as we thought. And so what God does next is so amazing because he speaks powerfully into the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth and powerfully into the lives of people like them, people like us. So let's continue in our passage beginning again in, in verse 8 Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense And when the time came for the burning of when the time for the burning of incense came all the assembled worshipers were praying outside Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So Zachariah and Elizabeth are going about their lives. And it's not as if life is just this kind of awful, broken-down mess, but we know there are struggles, pain, and disappointment. And all of a sudden, an angel appears to Zechariah. And whenever an angel shows up in the Bible, we know that God is at work. God is stepping into the story, stepping into history in a dramatic way. And the angel says to Zechariah, Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard you're going to have a son. What should be physically possible, I'm going to do. God is going to do. And God, again, is stepping into the story, and he's reminding Zechariah, but he's reminding all of his people. He's reminding us of who he is and what he's like. And he does this by going to really one of his signature moves, uh, a few weeks ago, Eric talked about the uh, the good old days of playing basketball on Monday nights. I was flattered by him comparing me to LeBron James, but this is, of course, ridiculous. My hairline is way better than LeBron's. But, you know, I, I never really liked that big three comparison, although I do think Chris Bosh is a good comparison for Eric because they both retired way too early. <laughs> but in basketball... Everyone kind of has a, a signature move. You know, the move or the shot that they're known for, that they go to when they need a bucket. I get made fun, a little bit, made fun of a little bit because I really only have one good move. Anybody who's played with me, if you ask them, hey, how should I guard Brandon? They'll tell you, well, just Brandon just does this one thing. He drives right, gather to the left, go up for the layup. So just watch out for that. John has a signature move. I would say it's his Kobe-esque post-up game. He'll kind of back you down and maybe fake the turnaround, go up and under, off the glass. Eric's signature move, maybe big offensive rebound over four guys and the putback. Matt, three-pointer, top of the key. You know, even Pastor Nick has a signature move. Monster offensive rebound, Miss the layup. Another offensive rebound. Miss that layup. But a third offensive rebound. Bucket. Probably. But the signature move, it, it tells you something about that player. Matt's a great shooter. Eric is physical and tough. John has the best footwork on the court. Nick is really buff and good at jumping. Now, Obviously, God has many signature moves, most complete game in the universe. But if you read through scripture, you might notice this theme, this signature miracle that we see over and over and over throughout the story. This theme of older, barren women giving birth to special children. Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah, and here Elizabeth. And this is such an interesting idea to me that over and over again, God has used this particular story to demonstrate something important about who he is. Because these miracles, this specific act, it reveals something so perfectly. And that's his redemptive, restorative power. It's a picture of him literally bringing life from someone who is broken. He's transcending what should be physical, physically possible in providing for someone, in changing someone, in doing his work, in fulfilling his plan through someone who has lost hope. Now, it's important that we recognize the point here. Passages like these are challenging because I think we know that the takeaway can't be that God is always going to fix everything. You know, we pray for things, we ask God for things, and sometimes he responds, sometimes even miraculously, but sometimes he doesn't. And I think we have to be careful that we don't place our hope in the idea that God will always make things right, always make everything we want better in the way we want right away. But at the same time, I think sometimes we can veer so far away from that that we stop believing, we stop hoping for a God who might work powerfully in our lives. Because what we see in Scripture and what remains true to this day is that God does work miraculously in and for his people. And he is working to restore your brokenness in a holistic way. Again, he may not solve every problem, but he is restoring you as a person and he is restoring your life as a whole. One of the ideas that Luke is is really beginning to unpack here, beginning to explore, and that he will continue to explore throughout his gospel, is that in the coming of Jesus to the world. This restorative power of God is being unleashed in a new way. Jesus' arrival brings a new era of hope and redemption and restoration because the kingdom of God is breaking through into our world, literally crashing through the walls of this earth. And so people are going to experience the redemptive power of God in their lives, often in miraculous ways. Think about all these amazing stories from the Gospels. A woman bleeding for 12 years, healed at the touch of Jesus' cloak. The most hated, reviled sinner in society, a tax collector, being offered forgiveness And restoration. A prostitute coming before Jesus, taking her perfume that she would have used for her profession and instead offering it as an act of worship. Lepers coming before Jesus in droves and and being touched and made clean. Notice the common thread here the way he restores each person is different. But for each person, he just changes their story, just like that, in a moment. He says, I'm not done with you. God isn't done with your life. And so he takes the brokenness in their life, maybe even something they don't even recognize yet, and he begins the process of healing and redemption. And I think sometimes we miss this when we think about why Jesus came and what he came to do. We kind of look at Jesus' birth, and then we skip ahead to the cross, and and we think about this larger story, which is very important, of, you know, the redemption from sin, our spiritual well-being. And again, that's really important. But at the same time, throughout Jesus' life, and even here In his birth story, what he shows us is that this redemption he offers us is also for the here and now. For ordinary people just trying to live their lives, Jesus shows us that God's commitment is to make broken things better. One of my uh, favorite worship songs of all time uh, is a song called Fire Fall Down by uh, Hillsong United came out several years ago. And there's a line in the song that, for some reason, just hits me. And it's probably because of this reality, this longing we have for restoration. But the line says, I know that you're alive. You came to fix my broken life. Jesus, I know that you're alive, and you came to fix my broken life. It's not really that profound of a statement, but I think it's a truth that we forget sometimes. Jesus, you came to fix my life. And there is so much hope in this kind of God, a God who says, you know, I care about the needs and the sins of the entire world, but I care about your individual life too. Your physical, your emotional, your relational well-being. And I'm sending you, my son, to remind you of that. To show you how powerful my redemptive work can be in the lives of broken people. And we live in this promise. That's the hope we have. That we worship and trust this kind of God. Who showed us his redemptive power, his goodness and grace, his love for the broken and hurting and sending us a Savior, this little child. So this morning, as I said, we're going to uh, light this candle together as a reminder of, of this truth, a reminder of our hope in Jesus. And I want you to do something, if possible, if it's not too inconvenient, wherever you are, maybe turn the lights down a little bit as much as you can without tripping over stuff on the way back to the couch. Because as we light this candle together, the flame begins to burn. We want to remember this amazing moment when light came into the world. When light spoke into a world of darkness, of people experiencing disappointment, hurt, sadness, pain, loss, brokenness, and God said, I still care, and I'm working on it. I'm not done yet, and he wants to bring that light, that reality into your life, your heart, your thoughts, your family, and our church. So here's what we're going to do. In a second, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to light the candle. And then we're going to give you some time and space to light your candle where you are. We're going to play a a song, uh, put the lyrics up on the screen, so if you want to, you can kind of follow along. But really, this is a time for you to reflect and pray. You can do this on your own. You can do this in your family. But take a moment to maybe thank God for being a God of hope. Maybe this is a time to come before God and ask God to reveal more of his restorative power in your life. To bring your brokenness before him and and place it at the feet of a God who loves you and cares for you and is invested in your redemption. And so again, there will be some music playing. You can just kind of sit and reflect on the words. But after you do that, if if it's convenient, and if you'd like to, one of the things that we want to invite you to do is to just quickly take a picture of you, your family, whoever you're with, uh, with your uh, Advent candle. And the reason for that is that at some point, we want to remind each other that we are still in this together, that we're still a community. And that really one of the ways that God reveals His hope to us, that God restores us, is through people. And being a part of a church, a family, is a glimpse of the hope that we have. And so, take a picture. Uh, you can post it or, or, or send it to Tina, our social media whiz. I don't understand how any of the like the Instagrams and stuff works. So just send it to Tina, and at some point we'll figure out a way to show you just all the people who are out there with you. But we think this is going to be a cool way, a great way of just remembering the unity that we have as a community. So let me pray for us, and then we will, as I said, light these candles together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for bringing us light that in sending your Son, you speak into the specific darkness of all of our lives. And we want to remember that you are a God who restores. You are a God who loves us, who cares for us. And we don't need to look any further than you sending your Son to redeem us both eternally and in the here and now. So God, I pray that these candles, this light, would be a powerful visual reminder of just how good you are and how much hope we have in you. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would fill our homes and our hearts with your spirit, and supernaturally remind us of who you are this morning. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Like the frost on a rose, winter comes for us all. Oh, how nature acquaints us with the nature of patience. Like a seed in the snow.
0: Well, I hope that time was a blessing for you and your family. Would you pray with me one more time as we close? God, thank you again for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the light that you sent us in your son, Jesus. And God, this week, this holiday season and beyond, would you remind us that we have hope in a God who loves, a God who restores, a God who is good. We worship you now, in Jesus' name, amen.